0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. It was inevitable, with the urgency of domestic politics and the passage of time, that the West's 24-7 laser focus on the war of Russian aggression in the Ukraine would begin to fade. But that conflict continues unabated And Putin has grown more lawless and vicious in his prosecution of the war, regularly and illegally targeting Ukrainian civilians. He's playing the long game and pushing ahead to the great equalizer in Slavic warfare, the bitter Russian winter. President Biden embarked this week on his first trip to the Middle East as president, encountering a region in flux. In Israel, he looked to consolidate and advance that country's progress in forging alliances with the Arab world with the goal of holding Iran at bay. In Saudi Arabia, he sought a pledge of increased oil production, which would reduce the domestic pressure he faces over sky-high gas prices. However, his visit was also complicated by his campaign promise to make the kingdom a pariah, for its role in the killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And back at home, the January 6th committee kept up its sensational pace in its series of hearings, each more dramatic than the last, and set up this week's primetime hearing, focusing on Donald Trump's minute-by-minute conduct as the riot he promoted raged on. To analyze these sharp, high-stakes conflicts at home and around the world, we welcome back to Talking Feds three of the most prominent and knowledgeable commentators in the country, and they are Natasha Bertrand, White House reporter with CNN covering national security. She began her career at Business Insider where she covered U.S. foreign policy and national security. She's written for The Atlantic, NBC News, and Politico where she covered the impeachment inquiry against Trump and developed a reputation as a scoop machine. In 2021, Natasha was named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list in media. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Natasha Bertrand.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Frank Figliuzzi, a former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, where he served 25 years, including as special agent in charge of the Cleveland Division. He's currently a national security analyst for NBC News, and he is the author of the national bestseller, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence, and he is currently working on a follow-up book To that excellent tome. Frank, so nice to see you.
2: Great to be here.
0: And Fiona Hill, a senior fellow currently at the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. From 2017 to 2019, she was the deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian affairs on the U.S. National Security Council, and she served as an intelligence analyst under both Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Prior to her time in government, she was the director of Harvard's Strengthening Democratic Institutions Project, She's the author of There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, which was featured in a Talking Books one-on-one discussion that you can still find on the website. Fiona Hill, very glad to see you back on Talking Feds.
3: Thanks, Harry. Great to be with you and Frank and Natasha as well. It's great. Thanks.
0: All right. So as I said in the intro... While the war of Russian aggression continues unabated, the news daily coverage has reduced some. We're no longer following it hour by hour. Let me just start with a general question for anyone, which is what is the state of play on the ground now over the last several weeks where U.S. attention has been diverted by the hearings, among other things?
3: Well, I think you know one of the reasons why we're not watching it blow by blow, day by day, is because it's now clear that this is a long, grinding, ongoing conflict. And I think you know part of the focus earlier on was it had been billed by Putin as a special military operation. And there was, of course, a lot of expectation built up that given the overwhelming preponderance of power on the Russian side, the large scale troop deployment and all the equipment and military power that Russia could put to bear, that Ukraine would have a really hard time Fighting them off. And of course, you know, that's not what it's turned out to be. And now that it's become apparent that we're really in for the long haul here, I think tension has uh, understandably to some degree waned, although I don't think that people's interest in the conflict has really waned. And based on some recent polling, in any case, people do still seem very concerned about this. But the state of play right now is that the Russians are sort of digging in, trying to consolidate their gains in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the Donbass region. They're still, of course, quite capable of wreaking havoc on a larger scale across Ukraine as well, shelling places around Kiev, major cities, civilian targets. We're seeing that very deliberate weaponization of civilian casualties, frankly, the kind of terrorizing of the population, because that's part of Russia's strategy. And now Putin and the people around him are very much focused on intimidating us, us writ large, the West, the United States and Europe, and trying to push us in the direction of giving up on our support for Ukraine, because Russia was assessed like everyone else that if Ukraine doesn't continue to have flows of weapons from the United States and other Western allies, doesn't get financial support, that the Ukrainian war effort will crumble. And so Putin's attention is all now focused on disinformation and intimidation to get us to back off.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that part of the strategy now for Putin is just to wear out the West, and he believes that because the West's attention span is very short, because energy prices are skyrocketing, because people in these countries are starting to feel this directly in their pocketbooks now, that the U.S. and its allies are going to lose their will to keep supporting Ukraine through this very grinding attritional fight. And we had a story a couple weeks ago about how privately the White House is starting to wonder. Is Ukraine going to be able to take back all of the territory that it has lost in the east since the war started in late February, especially given the progress that the Russians have been making in the eastern part of the country? Now, of course, this is as the United States and the West are continuing to send all of this heavy equipment to the Ukrainians. And there's no sign really that that is going to stop. I mean, President Biden has said that the U.S. is with Ukraine until the very end, whatever that means. But the reality that the White House now is confronting is the question of, has the Ukrainian state now essentially shrunk? And will Vladimir Zelensky need to recognize that and kind of change his expectations and the country's expectations for what a victory looks like? Especially because, again, privately, what we're hearing from the administration is that they want this to end in settlement talks. They want this to end in a negotiation. And I think the Ukrainians do too. I mean, Zelensky has said that. But the question is, what is that going to look like? Is the reality here that they're going to have to cede some territory? Zelensky says no, but he also says he wants the war to end by the end of this year. So these are the questions in our reporting that we've found the administration is grappling with. They say that they're not pressuring the Ukrainians to make any kind of concessions to Russia. But at the same time, the U.S. and its allies are speaking amongst themselves about how this is all going to end.
2: My lens, as you know, primarily is from the FBI's more of a counterintelligence domestic security lens. And I want to say that it's impossible for me to look at the Ukraine-Russia situation without tying it to the domestic situation. What do I mean by that? We've had entire podcast episodes on the polarization and divide in America. This is testing our resolve, right? We are divided And we're going to be increasingly divided about the issue of supporting Ukraine and the issue, sadly, of supporting democracy writ large. And so Putin knows that. He helped contribute in a big way to our polarization through propaganda, hacking, etc. So he's a smart guy on this topic and he knows he likely can wear us out. In fact, don't be surprised if you see this continued, extremely expensive support of Ukraine become an issue in midterms and beyond. And so my concern is that this is a test of our resolve on democracy writ large. I can tell you, having worked the Russian target for years in the FBI, that my personal position is that Putin must lose this. Putin must lose this because if he wins, and a win can be defined largely by Putin as any grab officially of more territory, he will keep going. He will keep going. And so I think we may have miscalculated the economic impact on him from all the sanctions because he's become an island. It's an island nation in some ways. And he's sitting there going, yeah, we'll be hungry, but we're going to survive this. So a test of our resolve tied to the domestic risk and threat, but he still has to lose. And that's the rub.
0: All great points. And not only lose, but lose cleanly. I mean, there's this disconnect between politics is normally always the art of compromise. Whereas here, we seem to have a zero-sum game. Zelensky, as Natasha was just saying, comes out and says, look, we can't lose any land. And my Lord, they are sustaining casualties at a clip of 20,000 a month. While the David in this, David and Goliath play, they are the victims of a outright terrorist war now where Russia is completely and with impunity Going after civilian targets, et cetera, and just aiming to have the greatest punishment to Ukraine possible. But I'm struck by what Natasha said, which is, you know, the whispers, and she's much closer to them of some kind of negotiated solution that gives him a few inches would seem in the inevitable way of the world. But the way this is played out as a sort of idealistic test of the West and the complete refusal to bargain with a tyrant makes any kind of pragmatic endgame with a map and a marker sort of impossible. Let me ask you, because you just had a very interesting interview about this. As Frank says, Russia's signature attribute in war is being able to suffer, 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 you know, forever. We're like in Stalingrad here. The notion is as long as he's in charge it will continue. And as long as he's in charge, some little claim of victory must be given him. And that's just at complete loggerheads with the goals for Ukraine. I gather you're not as certain as the conventional wisdom that Putin, at the end of the day, must be placated with some kind of victory.
3: Yeah, because that's part of Putin's own psychological operation against us. Putin, you know, is is trying to terrorize everyone, But he's also trying to defeat us in advance of anything so that he can try to get the maximal gains that he possibly can. And look, he has said in the last several days and weeks, we haven't even started yet. You know, we can fight to the last Ukrainian. We can devastate, you know, this uh, country. We can just keep on going. And as Natasha says, you know, they'll just keep on going and wait us out and grind us down. Well, you know, during the Cold War, part of the whole... Soviet strategy and psychological operations was to defeat the enemy before they'd even engaged in battle to give them the sense that they couldn't possibly prevail. Right, And so Putin's basically saying time is not on the west side and we'll come to the winter. And winter is always the great gift for Russians over the centuries. You know, Napoleon, you know, his troops dying in the snows and the icy wastes of, actually, because I think it was Poland and Ukraine at that time, you know, kind of on the, on the route to Moscow. Or Stalingrad, you know, you referenced there and all the German army also getting you know bogged down in the snow and in the winter. And in this case, it's going to be a variant of this that Europe reaches winter and the gas is going to be cut off. So they're not actually going to die in the snows on the outskirts of Moscow, but they're going to be cold in their houses and protesting and, and pushing back. And German industry is going to collapse because they don't have cheap gas, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Putin's playing all that out now. But just think about it. It's not good for him either, the longer term this goes on. Yes, they're flush with money from higher oil and gas prices now, but when we get past this winter into next year, the sanctions start to bite because they're already preventing them from refurbishing their military equipment, that lot of the sophisticated weaponry, including the stuff that the Ukrainians have seized from the Russians, the latest generation of tanks, depend on circuitry and components that come from the West. And I mean, that's been cut off for quite some time now, going back to 2014. And they've defaulted, right? Yeah. I mean, we kind of forced them into a default, but yes, they have. But there's also the, you know, the fact that we've got analysis now that suggests it's going to take them four years to be able to replenish the number of tanks that have been destroyed. We know that they're having a hard time getting manpower, trying to go for prisoners and you know all of these people from the periphery of the Russian uh, Federation, not from conscription from Moscow and St. Petersburg, because that would be politically unpalatable. And then in 2024, which is what I said in a recent interview, Putin's got to seek re-election. And usually what they do is they prepare two years out. So the fact that he was launching this special military operation in February of 2022, he's got an election in March of 2024. He thought this would be over and done with by now, because then he would be in, you know, the, hi, aren't I wonderful? I'm so amazing. I've retaken Ukraine. I've put Russia back on the map, the West has capitulated to me, and I'm gonna then start spreading out largesse through the administrative resources in preparation for my reaffirmation as president of Russia. So things don't look that great for him when he played out, which is why he's got to tell us that we're defeated. So we can defeat ourselves here. Now, it's not gonna be easy, as Natasha and Frank have already laid out. It is gonna be hard, but we have to recognize that we are falling into a trap that he wants us to fall into. It's very much you know, kind of what Frank would have had to deal with back in the FBI when you're trying to do the counterintelligence. The Russians are going around trying to influence people. Natasha knows this from the work that she did back in 2016 with the Russian intervention in our elections. We keep falling for their narratives all of the time.
0: Let's focus more then on the American public. I think the state of play is that the resolve, or at least the support, is unabated. You don't hear whispers anywhere in the West, including the Secretary General of the United Nations, of saying, well, maybe we have to back off. And so in that sense, support continues kind of behind the scenes. But does it seem to you and the administration fragile as gas prices We'll be talking about Biden's trip in a moment, but he's gone in part to Saudi Arabia to try to ease pressure on domestic gas prices, which have huge political implications for him. Does it seem to you in the administration that there is a real risk that the current pretty much unanimous support, if not daily focus of the American public and the West more generally is vulnerable and soft?
1: So before I answer that question, I just want to add one thing to what Fiona said, which is that the Russians are now asking the Iranians for drones, Mm -hmm. which is so shocking. Is that a game changer? It's just indicative of how desperate Russia is now for hardware because so many of their drones are getting shot down and crashing. And clearly they're struggling to make any of their own. And China is not giving them anything either, even though they were begging China a couple of months ago for help. So that is just very indicative in and of itself of how Russia's war effort is kind of struggling a bit. But in terms of the administration's support, no, that is not waning at all. I mean, we've seen no signs that either President Biden or anyone around him is thinking about abandoning Ukraine ever. I mean, he said very plainly that they're going to fight with Ukraine till the end. But again, we don't know what that actually is. We don't know what The administration considers to be a victory for Ukraine, and whether or not they're counseling the Ukrainians on what they should also perceive as a victory for themselves, right? Is it the Russians just not taking any more land? Is it kicking the Russians out entirely? That I think is still the gray area. We just don't know what that victory looks like in terms of the Biden administration's perception of things, because a couple months ago, they were saying that a full victory is, you know, we can kick the Russians out. We can defeat them decisively on the battlefield. We want to see them so weakened, and this is what the Secretary of Defense said, that they are not able to ever launch an invasion of this kind ever again. The administration has kind of backed off that language, and President Biden was actually quite upset that Austin had said that and told him to knock it off because there's this whole other debate within the administration about whether you need to kind of temper your rhetoric a bit surrounding what a Russian defeat actually is, a Russian failure actually is, so that you don't back Putin into a corner such that he lashes out even more.
0: Yeah, we don't want to get him really mad,
1: right? (laughs) Right, and I'm sure Fiona can speak to that psychology, but there's no real clearly defined picture of what a victory actually looks like, short of defeating them so decisively that they just never come back, which is very unlikely, according to the officials that, that we speak to. But I think that we have started to see some signs of cracking support among Republicans. There are some Republicans and some elements of the Republican Party that have been questioning kind of in line with this isolationist Trump attitude. Why are we giving all of this money to Ukraine? Why are we supporting a corrupt government, which is what they accuse Ukraine of being? And there is a fear, obviously, that if this war is not over by 2024, if the next president comes in, if it is Donald Trump, if it is one of these Republicans that is more isolationist, will that support continue? Because Russia's aggression doesn't seem any closer to really ever abating against Ukraine, even if they are driven out.
0: Well, let's take this as sort of an exit question. We have spent a lot of money, but nothing close to say, you know, Iran and Afghanistan and the like, but it juxtaposes uncomfortably with some of the domestic issues. If we can't zero in on exactly what a resolution looks like, how about when? I'm a little confused and perhaps you are as well. So even Fiona and others who are Less cowed and intimidated by Putin, nevertheless, think, well, it's a long war. Zelensky, as you say, is thinking it's going to end by winter. That seems fanciful. In fact, it seems fanciful that it would end by spring. So there's this notion on the one hand, we want to tend on the other, that Putin, for good or for bad, things will continue while his will is the operative force. So, what's the best? crystal ball prediction of just how long a slog we are in for. We're not talking about months. We are talking about years. Is that right? Or am I kind of missing the broader picture?
2: I've written columns on how very impressive the strategic use of Western intelligence has been thus far in uh, getting Ukraine out in front of Russian plans and intentions. Clearly, the dissemination of almost raw intelligence by Biden was incredibly helpful But there's the but there, right, which is that kind of use of intelligence has a shelf life. By that, I mean sources and methods, which clearly were impressive. I mean, we apparently owned portions of the Russian government through human penetrations, through technical sources, whatever. The kind of dissemination we saw was reflective of just ownership. And Putin was livid about it. But he has now figured that out and seemingly replaced a lot of his people, some detained, some jailed. And here's the problem with that. Our ability to sustain that kind of cloak and dagger aid to Ukraine is shortened by that. So ultimately, I'm concerned about our ability, you know, behind the scenes to provide the kind of support we've been providing. And then lastly, with regard to how long this goes, I think a lot depends on Biden's meeting with Saudi. I mean, this is our mm-hmm. economy. We're talking about our economy being linked to sustaining Ukraine and the American public sentiment about gas prices and inflation. So that's got to get sorted out.
0: Quick follow-up, Frank. When you say, you know, short lifespan of these sources and methods, I mean, what you're saying is they get burned, Putin gets onto them, and they become in danger, at least ineffective to us. Yeah, I mean, this is ugly uh, international business, right?
2: Yeah, almost literally lifespan, unfortunately. Yeah, the kind yeah. of stuff we saw being disseminated, when attacks are coming, from where, yeah. and all that. That's almost singular source information in some regards. And and yes, people have fallen out windows and been fired and arrested. So, yeah.
3: I mean, again, like the efforts that Putin is putting into through public messaging to intimidate us, you know, he's given plenty of signaling to people about what happens to you if you start sharing information you shouldn't, poisoning Alexander Litvinenko with polonium.
0: On a British bench or whatever. I yeah, mean, Yeah, again in a
3: British town with Novichok. I mean, he's basically telling people, I can get you no matter where you are, whether you're in, you know, Russia for sure, and then, you know, kind of on the outside. But the other point, Frank touched on Biden being in Saudi Arabia and this is being our economy, but the global economy is affected by this. And it's not just Western sanctions on Russian oil and gas, but it's what Putin is doing here. And, I, and this is actually where we need to message and communicate very clearly. Because, you know, as we've all said here, Putin doesn't really intend to stop. I mean, you can placate for a short period of time with something that fudges some of the territorial gains that they've made. But Putin has made it very clear that it's expansionist for all of Ukraine. So Zelensky knows that. That's why Zelensky's basically saying, look, we can't give away territory. You know, give them an inch and they literally will take a mile. And then why is it that the Finns joined NATO? Because the Finns are saying, look, everything that Putin's saying has got a broader perspective here. He's talking about being Peter the Great. Peter the Great during the Great Northern War took Finland and the Baltic States and Belarus, not just Ukraine. Sometimes he's Catherine the Great and then that's Odessa and, and Mariupol and Herson and all these other kind of places. I mean, the guy thinks he's a czar. I've said it before, he's a fabulist. <laughs> he's running around with great big voluminous skirts as Catherine the Great or a funny hat on as Peter the Great. I mean, he thinks that he's you know basically regaining Russian territory, and even if he doesn't actually do that or set out to you know, literally regain all of this, he's basically saying we want to dominate here. And so we have to factor in that we're grappling with somebody and some a group of people around him who have very expansionist aims, and they're ruthless. So Putin has created the prospects of a famine in the Middle East and in Africa and elsewhere, global security. he's the one who's been basically putting in a blockade and the and the black sea destroying Ukrainian grain production the fourth largest exporter of critical grains ukraine's not going to come back under russia in terms of an agricultural powerhouse so there's all of these knock on effects so i think part of our problem is we have to address obviously head on what frank and natasha have been saying and you know all of these things are very difficult but we've got to have some pretty coherent messaging and communications as well and explanations about all this. It won't be just sufficient to run around trying to get Venezuela or Saudi Arabia. Obviously, Iran, if they sell drones to Russia, will not be back on the energy markets. But, you know, how do we deal with all of this? I've talked a lot in the last few weeks with senior officials from Japan and Finland and Singapore and all kinds of places who are all really concerned and all kind of trying to figure out how do we all work together? to address this. So it's not just on the US and what Biden can do. It's just on how do we keep things together. And in that regard, getting back to what Natasha was saying, yes, we worry that we've all gone soft and we've got the midterms. But you know, Putin does still have an election technically before ours. He's supposed to have an election March 2024. So let's not think that everything is going smoothly for Vladimir Putin and that we're all you know kind of weak and can't do anything.
0: It's time now for our sidebar feature where we explain an important concept in the federal law. What happens when officers violate your Fourth Amendment rights? The answer is the exclusionary rule. How that works and what its many exceptions are is the subject of today's sidebar, and we're really thrilled to welcome to read this week's sidebar one of this country's most talented and accomplished young novelists, Viet Tong Nguyen. He is the Errol Arnold Chair of English and Professor of English, American Studies and Ethnicity, and comparative literature at the University of Southern California, but that is just his academic role where he has produced many important works of scholarship. He is primarily known as an author, and his debut novel, The Sympathizer, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2016. It's a fantastic book set in Vietnam and France and combining a sort of spy mystery with a really nuanced meditation on the role of the Vietnam War in American history and the status of Vietnamese Americans in this country today. It is really great and I highly recommend it. He's also been awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant and the Guggenheim Fellowship. After the Sympathizer, he wrote the Refugees, also very highly received. I give you now Viet Tang Nguyen on the Exclusionary Rule.
4: The Exclusionary Rule The Fourth Amendment requires that searches be reasonable. Generally, this means that the government has probable cause to believe that a search will turn up contraband, or evidence. But the Constitution provides no remedy for a violation. The Supreme Court has created a remedy known as the Exclusionary Rule. As its name implies, the Exclusionary Rule mandates the exclusion of evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Criminal defendants can move to suppress evidence on the ground that it was obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Often, the suppression of evidence forces the government to drop its case. Moreover, the exclusionary rule extends to any evidence that was derived from the constitutional violation. This is known as the Fruit of the Poisonous Tree Doctrine. For example, if an illegal search turns up evidence such as a photograph that then leads the police to locate a buried body, the body would also be inadmissible. The exclusionary rule is well established but nevertheless controversial because it is not explicitly stated in the Constitution. Moreover, suppressing evidence carries a high social cost of making it harder to establish the truth at trial. As Justice Cardozo wrote a century ago, the criminal is to go free because the constable has blundered. There are various arguments in favor of the rule, but the Supreme Court has emphasized its utility for deterring unconstitutional searches. Without the rule, the police would have insufficient motivation to adhere to the requirements of the Fourth Amendment. The rule has several limitations. First, the good faith exception permits evidence when officers reasonably rely on a search warrant that turns out to be invalid. Second, the independent source and inevitable discovery doctrines permit the use of fruit of the poisonous tree evidence derived from illegally seized evidence that is or would have been discovered absent the constitutional violation. Finally, illegally obtained evidence can be used to attack a defendant's credibility through impeachment if the defendant chooses to take the stand in her own defense. For Talking Feds, I'm Viet Nguyen.
0: Thank you very much, Viet Tong Nguyen, for that explanation of the exclusionary rule. The Sympathizer, Wen's debut Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, is now being made into an HBO series that will air in 2023. He has now written a sequel to The Sympathizer entitled The Committed, with the same narrator, half Vietnamese and half French who refers to himself as a man of two faces and two minds, this set largely in France. Cannot recommend The Sympathizer enough as a place to start with Viet Tan Nguyen's work. All right, it is now time for A Spirited Debate, brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine & More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine,
5: spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unbottle the truth about wine. Is there really a right or a wrong way to enjoy it? Wine drinkers near and far have lived by a certain set of written yet unofficial rules to follow, particularly when it comes to pairing wine and food. You've heard a couple of them before. White wine pairs with seafood, red wine pairs with big old juicy steaks. And while we like to think of these more as guidelines than rules, some suggestions actually do serve a higher purpose, to help your wine get the most from your dish, and vice versa. One pairing that's not quite as obvious involves tannins. Tannins are the dryness that you taste and feel in wine. They come from grape seeds, skin, or oak barrels. Traditionally, high tannin wines and spicy foods don't pair well together. The dry components of the wine become more pronounced with spice, which makes the food itself taste even hotter than it actually is. From drinking red wine with fish to white wine with beef, we say you do you. But there is one no-no that we wholeheartedly live by. Always, yes, always hold your glass by the stem and not the bulb, and there are a few reasons why. Putting your warm hands on the bulb transfers unnecessary heat to the wine. As wine warms up, it will become off-balance and you will taste the alcohol more and more. Not to mention, you can easily avoid smudges to your beautiful glassware. To truly enjoy wine, you can never go wrong pairing the wonderful selection and helpful guides at Total Wine & More. Cheers.
0: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, so both of your comments, especially Fiona's, really sets up, it's a cliche, but the interconnectedness of the world and the domestic economy to this, and which brings us straight on to Biden's first trip to the Middle East as president. We've spoken about Saudi Arabia. Of course, he's starting in Israel. What are his primary goals here and how will his success or failure be measured?
1: So the biggest goal that he and his advisors had for the Saudi portion of this trip was really just to repair the relationship with the Saudi crown prince, NBS. And If you ask them that directly, they'll probably deny it. But privately, they do acknowledge that the relationship has been so damaged over the last year plus.
0: And why is that, if we can address the gorilla in the room, as it were?
1: Yes, of course. So because of the fact that the U.S. intelligence community concluded that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who is a U.S. resident and a columnist for the Washington Post. President Biden, during the campaign season, before he was elected, obviously this had already happened, This the murder happened in 2018, and it was widely believed within the United States that MBS had approved the murder even before this intelligence report was released. He, The president had promised to make MBS a pariah and had said repeatedly that His administration, if he were elected, would not be doing business as usual with the Saudis, so would not be selling them offensive weapons, would not continue supporting their war in Yemen, and would not treat them as though they were a legitimate actor on the world stage. Now, when they got into office, that proved to be kind of an unrealistic goal, and that became very clear after Russia invaded Ukraine this year. Because obviously global energy markets were roiled, oil prices spiked, and as the world tried to cut off Russian oil, obviously that created a lot of problems and it caused prices in the US to rise dramatically. And so when that began to happen, the administration started saying, well, we need Saudi Arabia to be on our side here and start increasing oil production so that we can stabilize the markets. The problem was, though, that MBS had been snubbed by President Biden over the last year plus. President Biden had only wanted to speak to his father, who's the king. And MBS takes personal relationships and being snubbed very seriously. And they weren't increasing well production as the United States was begging them to do. So the biggest goal for this trip was really to get that relationship back on track, try to convince the Saudis and... OPEC plus in the Gulf states, the ones that can to increase oil production over the next several months to a year and essentially to on a bigger scale, on a broader scale, remove Saudi Arabia from Russia's orbit, because, of course, geopolitically, the United States is also trying to isolate Russia from any and all allies in the region and globally.
0: You know, it strikes me that this is a similar dynamic to what we were just talking about in Russia-Ukraine, which is a clash between what seem like absolutist or moral values that don't allow a sort of hedging in politics on the one hand, and down and dirty domestic politics, price at the gas tank, etc. I wonder, Fiona or Frank, if you have views just about whether even by their own political terms, is the administration miscalculating? They are going to take a hit. They'll have this photo op and it'll be juxtaposed, including in Republican commercials with the, we're going to make him a pariah. And by its nature, it's the kind of stance that it's hard to temporize. It's like he's a pariah or isn't a pariah. And how do you balance that against 50 cents less at the gas tank?
2: Boy, Harry, I think you have just encapsulated the dilemma here. I mean, and this is why I'm not a diplomat. This is really tough stuff. I mean, we're talking about a photo opportunity standing next to a tyrant. From the intelligence world, the Saudi security services are brutally ruthless. They are killers. They are torturers.
0: So even within this ugly world, they're super bad, as it were.
2: Always bad actors capable of heinous things on behalf of their country. So. Yeah, it's disturbing for me to see what's about to happen. And by the way, I can't help but think that Putin is relishing this to a bit because, you know, it's the irony here that we're claiming he's the we've got the moral high ground. He's the guy fighting democracy. He's the guy throwing people out windows. He's the guy poisoning adversaries. And here we are, of course, having to cozy up. Now, I'm fascinated to see what cozy up looks like, right? Because if it's handled correctly and, and it's hard to do, let's hear how Biden spins this. We've held them to task. They're going to change their conduct. We're going to limit things with them. But we've also agreed on if they show us proof of getting better, then we're going to deal in oil with them. So how is this managed? But I got to tell you, on a visceral, personal level, this is ugly stuff.
3: Frank's point about Putin just smiling or even beaming, you know, broadly, if he's capable of doing that at the
0: moment. (laughs) With all the Botox. Right. You know,
3: set in, you know, <laughs> kind of in a particular way here. And on the domestic front, extremely problematic. And look, we have a long history of doing this, right? The Bashar Assad he's still there. Demonization of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. And yet, you know, talking about trying to get Venezuela back online in terms of energy production in line with what Natasha said. You know, at different points, even kind of wondering if this might be an opening for Iran, but then Iran, you know, go and play to type. And there's all the talk about them sending drones to Russia. And, you know, there's also Putin running around talking to both Iran and Turkey about energy. I mean, we always, United States, look like we're full of it, frankly, from Russia and other critics' uh, point of view, when it really kind of comes to issues of money in our economy. And that's why Putin pretty much figured that we would not respond when he invaded Ukraine. And it's because it's the peak of energy demand. It's the peak period of leverage for Russia at this particular point. It may not be over time, although now we might be back in the whole hydrocarbon world for some considerable period. And Putin wanted to make the most of the fact that he thought he'd bought everyone off one way or another or sanction-proofed his economy. And he's been initially a bit shocked, but now he's kind of seeing what he thinks is the classic pattern. So this feeds in even more to what we were talking about before, where winter is his friend, he's got the gas, we're running around, the Saudis may not want to play a ball because everyone's going to be extracting their concession from the United States and the United States looks as usual, like it's basically playing double standards and Putin will absolutely make hay out of this, just like Republicans and people on human rights and you know, people like myself and, you know, Frank and others who just know the way that the Saudis play ball. It's basically for Putin, money matters for other people. He's basically saying it doesn't matter for him, of course it does. I mean, he needs money, needs money to basically conduct this wall. But he's got money. He's got plenty of rubles swashing around in his system from energy sales to pay the salaries if he can get enough troops and to kind of keep it going for a while. But he knows that we are so easily induced by money one way or another hits to our economy, people not making money, putting pressure on the government and, you know, trying to find sources of energy, which is all part of that complex.
2: And all of this, which all comes down to America's insatiable thirst for oil and our ability to have to offer concessions, right, to everybody, we still are unlikely to see the far right come out and say, we need to move away from oil. We need more investment in renewable energy, right? So it's just this self-perpetuating problem.
0: No, but of course, they'll say the whole problem, nevertheless, is in Biden's lap. All right, let's go a couple of minutes anyway to the first leg of the trip in Israel. Biden confronts a very different Israel. I mean, Saudi Arabia just announced it's going to permit Israeli flights there. Israel has made headway in kind of strategic cold alliances and trying to hold Iran at bay. Let me just ask this. (laughs) Um, You know, it seems like the U.S. policy is important ways staying the course from the Trump years, including endorsement of the Abraham Accords the very, very cold shoulder to Palestinians. So maybe this is the sort of broken clock is right twice a day, but does it seem in retrospect that Trump basically got this right and where Israel is concerned, we're in a neo-Trumpian world, as it were?
1: So (laughs) there are some arguments that say that this train would have been going in this direction regardless of U.S. involvement and that, sure, the Abraham Accords were great to get the ball rolling, but that this kind of expanding diplomatic normalization between Israel and the Arab countries was happening with or without the United States playing a very central role. And so the Biden administration, in order to justify, I think, a lot of its involvement with the Saudis now and with this trip, They have been arguing that without U.S. involvement and without U.S. support, then it would be very difficult for Israel to be expanding this kind of normalization, especially with the Saudis. I think that there's truth to both arguments. The Israelis were actually pushing very hard for Biden to make this trip to Saudi Arabia because they really want this to happen. Ultimately, full normalization between the countries probably is not going to happen anytime soon, but they want this kind of expanding diplomatic relationship with the Saudis and with the Gulf states to to happen.
0: Can't blame them, right? Yeah.
1: Right. And it has to do with regional security. It has to do with the threat from Iran. They were lobbying very hard for this meeting to happen. And so it's kind of a what came first chicken or egg situation. I think ultimately, President Biden actually was more reluctant to visit Saudi Arabia and was swayed by the Israelis urging him to go because, of course, he has such a long, deep relationship with the Israelis. But I think that it's definitely a changing tide. And right now, one of the big projects that has been discussed during Biden's visit to to Israel is whether or not they're going to have this integrated regional security air defense system that could protect them against any threats from Iran or its proxies.
0: And speaking of endorsement of conservative initiatives, it really, I mean, I lived there. I was in air shelters when it happened, and it all sounded like Ronald Reagan's Star Wars to me actually uh, come true. Let me just add that everything you say seems right, but there's this complication that Israel itself is so unstable. What does it mean to be dealing with Israel? They're now having to get a new government, and that's just... To echo Frank, I'm glad I'm not a diplomat, but it's a wrinkle that I think is significant.
3: There is one element that we need to introduce here, and I'd like to hear what Frank says as well, which is about Iran itself. So you know, when Natasha was talking about there being trends moving in a certain direction, the anchor point was actually mutual animosity towards Iran, uh, in part. And fear. And what you saw, of course, in the Trump administration was a complete jettisoning of any efforts to engage Iran. And I think, you know, that was part of the element that really pushed forward some of the Abraham Accords. And we're seeing that in some of the things that um, Natasha's describing about these regional efforts, early warning you know, systems about the use of Iranian drones, other points about sort of defensive posture against Iran. And of course, you know, the um, Israeli government under Netanyahu, as we all know, Was ecstatic at the fact that under Trump, certainly, you know, once Ambassador Bolton came in as national security advisor and Pompeo became secretary of state, that you had a kind of a group of people pushing incredibly forward, very fast on divesting themselves of the JCPOA, the nuclear arms agreement. Which
0: seems kind of dead in the water now, yes, Fiona?
3: Yes, exactly. And trying to, you know, push for regime change in Iran. Of course, obviously for Netanyahu, that was kind of a real boost. And the Abraham Accords were not driven entirely by that. But those relationships start to get shaped. And of course, as you said, the Biden administration comes in and tries to regroup and put back the JCPOA. And now it's a big question mark. And I think that's going to have to be something to grapple with because an awful lot of people inside of Israel that i talked to after the fight started to fret somewhat about dealing with Iran and worrying that maybe they had pushed too hard on JCPOA. And, you know, still kind of wondering how they would deal with Iran. I think that's you know, something we haven't really talked about here. It's obviously why the Israelis in part are pushing, I think as Natasha is right. But also that worry that they'd also put too much of their eggs in the Republican basket with Trump. And that, you know, maybe they'd actually soured relationships with key people in the Democratic Party. And of course, as you said, Biden's got a long relationship and is very well disposed towards Israel. And trying to make sure that they have a bipartisan approach to, to Israel. But this issue about the Saudis and others and Iran... And, you know, how are you going to put all of that together? And I don't think we can go beyond this without really talking about Iran, which is really trying to exert itself as a major player in the midst of all of these crises.
2: I think what's driving, in part, of course, Israel's desire to see increased relations between them and the rest of the Middle East is this Iran question and the ability to which reasonable minds in the Middle East will help with the Iran problem. And it was interesting to see the strong statement that Biden made in Israel. That we're simply never going to allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon, a stark reminder of the threat there, which they continue to develop. But again, as we've just talked for lots of this episode, you know, we make these statements, we say things, somebody's going to be a pariah, something's never going to happen, we're going to have a red line, and of course, things could change. But Biden was sending a strong signal, look, he knows they're developing their program, and he's saying it's, it's not going to happen, even if we have to take military action.
0: All right, I purposely wanted, because the bigger focus on the news in the States this week was the hearings, to have it last. But let's close out briefly with a few thoughts about the hearings, which continue to be sort of blockbuster. And we're told the biggest one is the one that's going to be next week in the 178 minutes. What stood out for you most about the last hearing? And are you looking for anything in particular? In the hearing on Thursday, the 21st, especially by way of presentation of evidence, how they're going to go about portraying his inaction over three hours.
2: The two things that I think popped out for me on the last hearing were the degree to which Trump wanted only a small group of people. He wanted to hide his intentions, only a small group to know about it, to call that rallying cry, to call for the, for the crowd to move to the Capitol. You know, as a prosecutor, that evidence of concealment, a desire to conceal your action, can be offered as evidence of consciousness of guilt, right? You don't want to hide something if you think it's perfectly fine. Right. And I think that was very significant, perhaps not even talked about enough.
0: No, it's true, right? He puts in the capital thing and then they withdraw it, for example, yeah. in that draft speech.
2: Yeah, and the other the other thing that popped was just a reminder that, you know, he had two calls with Steve Bannon on January five. After that first call, Bannon goes public and says, quote, all hell's going to break loose tomorrow. Is that smoking gun? No. Is it worth exploring? Yes. So bottom line for me, I've said publicly, DOJ should have plenty here to predicate the opening of an investigation with Donald J. Trump in the subject line. I'm not going to get into successful indictment and prosecution, but absolutely, if they have not opened a case with his name in it, they need to do so right now.
0: And let me just add a couple things. He does that on the 5th. He then tells Meadows to go to the Willard. Meadows doesn't, but that's certainly the idea and the plan. That's on the proof side. And then I would just summarize, this is a much bigger topic, but that they've proffered so much. But as a prosecutor, thinking about not just the biggest ticket item, but the one to me that seems most to conform to what he did, that is seditious conspiracy. The DOJ is going to have to, and they'll probably need some cooperation for this, stitch up the actual agreement. We have a lot of circumstantial evidence that it occurred, including what you've named, but to go all the way on that charge, and there are other charges they can do, we're going to need some kind of testimony about, I was in the room and the president nodded his head. Fiona, any thoughts about the hearing?
3: Yeah, I think that what you and Frank, you know, as experts on process and procedure and everything else have said is extremely interesting. If you look at it from the political point of view, of course, there is that kind of question about how do you put this together with the Department of Justice without it appearing political, which is extraordinarily difficult. As we reach, again, our own midterms and then we'll be off to the races on the campaign Trump himself has said he's going to announce at a very key critical moment, whether he's running or not. I mean, we're all expecting him to do. And it's not just the court of US public opinion. I see commentators all the time. And Frank, you've been on with, you know, many of these people saying it doesn't matter. People don't care. They don't pay attention. I don't think that's true. I've just come back from staying with my relatives out in Kenosha County, Wisconsin, and people are paying attention. They're not always, you know, watching all of this, but they're waiting to kind of see whether they're convinced or not. But overseas everybody is paying attention. And we get back to Vladimir Putin and other people watching this extraordinarily closely. And we have to show that the United States, we're not just doing political vengeance, because, you know, we we always are grappling with countries where the ex-leaders always end up in jail, or political opponents. But they're also trying to see if we can actually handle this. And I think US leadership is on the line here. And people will say, well, that doesn't matter. But absolutely, it does. I mean, the United States' ability to press its interests is very much tied to our international standing, and we look like an absolute basket case at this moment. I'm sorry to say. I came back to the U.S. from a trip to the United Kingdom, which is let just look at like a pretty much of a basket case itself.
0: Right. People right. said
3: to me, "How can you continue to go, go and live in that insane place?" And I said, "What do you mean? January 6, you know, the whole failed impeachment trials." The thing is, the committee there's as an earthing, and then on top of that, we never fully appreciate how our mass gun violence looks anywhere else. And so I came back before Highland Park because I came back before July Fourth. But just as Biden and others were grappling with the attempts to kind of put some kind of constraints around guns and create more regulation, we look insane on this topic everywhere. Because, you know, if you look at Vladimir Putin, he has a monopoly on violence. He doesn't have people running around with guns everywhere because that would be a threat to the state. Even in authoritarian states, we look nuts. I mean, I've lived in the United States longer than I've lived anywhere else. I still can't get my head around how it's conceived of here, the whole politicization of everything. Because from anyone from the outside, the United States looks ungovernable and out of control and on the verge of an armed civil conflict. I mean, it looks more complex inside, of course, but that's how it looks on the outside. And so our ability to manage this, the January 6th committee, and, you know, what it says about armed militias and everything else that we're kind of dealing with here is going to be consequential in an enormous way for our future global leadership. And the United States could be very well diminished by this, which makes it much more difficult for us to press, you know, our case on all kinds of issues that matter a lot to people living here and to our domestic politics.
0: What a great and synthesizing and sobering point. Just a couple quick comments. Look, we started the whole season here of like, will it look like a banana republic if we go after the former president? But now everyone has to acknowledge there's some point where a civilized democracy has to be able to respond. And my Lord, if we haven't passed that point, When will we ever? And I just want to tie in with the sort of prosaic point of what everyone's talking about. Will they make criminal referrals and say to, I think, sophisticated players here, nobody thinks that they're going to truly influence the DOJ in a major way by making the referral. They would like to put it forward, but they also want to avoid, just as you were saying, Fiona, any kind of inference that down the line the DOJ is dancing to their tune. And that's the more meta dynamic. And big hearing next week. We were just about out of time, and what I have to say has been a fantastic discussion. We just have a minute left for our talking five today's topic, which we all need to answer in five words or fewer. Ooh, I feel disadvantaged here. I'm glad I go last, but here we go. When will Brittany Griner next leave Russia? Five words or fewer, anybody.
1: Whenever Russia gets Victor back, (laughs) Victor being victor boots the merchant of death the russian prisoner in the u.s that that russia wants back so badly
0: Ooh, excellent excellent and five words on the button
1: i want
2: to just twist that a little bit and, and say when multiple prisoners get swapped here's why victor boots a major badass international convicted arms dealer not an even trade for britney in in any stretch of the imagination We're going to need multiple people back from Russia for this to happen.
3: I agree with Frank. (laughs) All
0: right. Just for kicks and giggles, because I think Putin's trying for some reason, given that they permitted that testimony, et cetera. You know, they always remember you if you're right and forget if you're wrong. I'm going with six weeks. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Natasha, Fiona, and Frank for what's really been a fantastic discussion. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube where we post full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. And we're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. We've just recently posted there an interview with journalist Bart Gelman about his piece in the Atlantic entitled, What Happened to Michael Flynn? Submit your questions to... Questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Messias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Ria Cohn, Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Viet Tan Nguyen for explaining the exclusionary rule. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. Talk to you later.